Good morning. Hey, hasn't it been kind of fun to take a tour of Chattanooga the last few weeks? <laughs> Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study your word. We ask that your spirit will be with us and join us today. We thank you for the fellowship of friends. We ask that uh, all of our conversations will glorify you. And we ask that you would be with our class members who are, are not with us today for various reasons, that you will uh, heal in the, in the circumstances that need to be healed, and that you will watch over those who are traveling. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number six in our uh, quarterly Redemption in Romans. And the title for the uh, lesson this week is called Expounding the Faith. And uh, I actually want to clarify something uh, regarding what we've been talking about the last two weeks before we actually go into this week's lesson. And um, basically, to prevent or allay any concerns or allegations that might arise against what we're, we're teaching. As you know, I, I, the last couple of weeks I've kind of drawn a distinction between the, the traditional penal model and, and our model. And the point I want to clarify is this. Our model does not suggest that God did not need to pardon or forgive us. If God would, was unwilling, if he's unforgiving, if he was unwilling to, to extend his pardon, well, we had no hope, right? Our model doesn't suggest that that wasn't needed. What our model suggests is that that was never an obstacle to salvation. God's pardon and God's forgiveness was never in the way. It was automatic. It was already there because of who God is. That wasn't, uh, a, 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 so, so therefore Christ's death wasn't needed to somehow achieve God's forgiveness or pardon. Does that make sense to everyone? Yes. So God, of course, forgives because God is forgiving. And then the, along these other lines also, I, I don't, we don't suggest that God doesn't make a declaration regarding our righteousness. Uh, I believe he does, or our justification. It's just that his declarations are descriptive of what he achieves in us and what he achieves for us through Christ, rather than um, some uh, empty claim that doesn't actually exist in reality. The one model is that uh, justification, being justified, is when God declares something to be uh, or recognizes something as such that yet hasn't been achieved. If you actually, there's an article in Spectrum I read last night written by somebody who takes this view, and it makes it very clear in there that when God reckons or justifies us, we aren't really, we aren't really righteous. He just says we are. Well, I, I dispute that. I dispute that completely. I don't think God is in the business of pro- proclaiming falsehoods. I don't think he actually says something is that is not. So our position is that the, this, that the, uh, the species known as human was perfectly set right in the person of Jesus Christ. And then as individuals, um, we are in a natural state of enmity against God. Our heart and mind is not in harmony. We are at war, as it says in Romans. Our mind is, the carnal mind is at enmity against God. And that through the work of the Holy Spirit, through what all Christ has done, we as sinners are brought to a point where we go from distrust and enemy of God to a place where we say, hey, I've been one to trust. I trust you. And when we're one to trust or we have faith in God, that's a change of heart that is worked and brought about by the work of God and the Holy Spirit on our hearts and minds. That then is recognized as being set right with God. Justification means to be set right with God. Okay? And so the higher hurdle to get over is the hurdle of taking those who are at war, who don't trust God, who see him as their enemy, who believe lies about him, whose heart is naturally opposed to him, and bring them to the point that they recognize him, trust him, and surrender heart to him. And that's why it says in Romans 4, when Abraham had faith or trusted God, he was recognized by God as being righteous or set right with him again. His heart was now right with God. He was back in a right relationship. 
Does that make sense? Okay. So let's, let's look at Sabbath's lesson for this week. First paragraph says, Paul has established the point that justification or acceptance with God comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. For his righteousness, righteousness alone is enough to give us the right standing with our Lord. Now, can that sentence be heard in more than one way? Yes. How can it be? How do you hear it in a way that actually brings hope and comfort and peace to your heart? What does it mean to you? Well, it sounds like that we don't have to have any faith. It's just the fact that Christ is righteous makes everything our. It says it says it comes comes only through faith in Jesus. It says that in the sentence. Should we clarify words like? What does justification mean, or acceptance, or what does it mean to be accepted by God? What does it take for God to accept us? To be in harmony with Him. What does faith mean? What does right standing with God mean? That's the one I was thinking of. Trust. <laughs> yeah. When you trust and have faith and believe in Him, then you do as He says to do. She says, when you trust, have faith, believe in Him, then you do as He says to do. So one aspect she's representing here is that the problem that needs to be fixed is that we as sinners are not in a, in, a, in a heart and mind attitude towards God that is right. Our heart and mind attitude is wrong towards God. We distrust him. We, we, we are selfish. We look, out for, uh, we look out for ourselves. We're deceitful. We've got an attitude and heart and mind that, that is wrong towards God. And that what needs to happen is to be in a right standing with God, our heart and mind has to be changed so that we have a right attitude, an attitude of trust, an attitude of confidence, which means our view of him has changed. And something has changed in the heart. So that's what she's saying. Justification is is an actual process of putting us right with God. Yes? What that says to me is that if my heart and mind is right with God, when God the Father looks at me, he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus. Is he seeing Jesus because Jesus stands between the two of you? Or is he seeing Jesus because Jesus is reproduced within you? Yeah, that's a difference, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And that's what the scripture would teach. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in front of me, hiding me from the Father. No, he lives in me. You see, the other model has that other idea, that, uh, the, that Christ lives in front of us, hiding us from the Father. No, no, no. Christ lives in us. That's, she's exactly right. So... Can it be heard in a way, though, that suggests another thing? The same sentence. Uh, Paul has established the point that justification or acceptance with God comes only through faith in Jesus Christ, for his righteousness alone is enough to give us the right standing with our Lord. Does it almost sound like, uh, you know, the Lord has, has, has uh, you know, got this standard and, and, uh, and something has to be done to get him to be willing to accept us? It makes it sound like... Because of Jesus' righteousness, God can receive us or can accept us. If we conclude that justification means legal adjustment, has that ever been suggested? Uh Yeah, we've been reading it for the last two weeks. Uh, Legal adjustment of our records, then do we get a different idea of what it means to have right standing? Uh Yeah. So, if, if justification is a legal action, then... Yes. If Jesus hadn't achieved a perfect life, if he had committed a sin and hadn't become perfect in character, then we wouldn't be set right with God. We couldn't be set right with God without Jesus having achieved that for us. Excellent. Well said. 
So we have to have that perfect life in order to be set right. That's right. And and only Jesus achieved that. We couldn't achieve that. Yeah. So, yes. Is one way to look at this is to see who changes. Does God have to change, or do we have to change? Another way to look at that would be when man sinned, who got changed? Yeah. Did man get changed by sin, or did God did God get changed by sin, or man? Yeah, God wasn't changed, but mankind's condition seriously changed. And so, bringing back to harmony doesn't have anything to do with adjusting or fixing or doing anything to God. That has something to do with this creation, fixing creation that is no longer in harmony with God. Second paragraph says, Through the fall of one man, Adam, all humanity faced condemnation, alienation, and death. Through the victory of one man, Jesus, all the world was placed on a new footing before God, in which by faith in Jesus, the record of their sins and punishment due to those sins could be forgiven and forever pardoned. Any questions about that at all? Or is it just me? The, I mean, when I read this sentence, maybe it's, maybe it's a, a bad sentence, maybe it wasn't meant to say what it said, but it says, one in which, by faith in Jesus, the record of their sins and the punishment due to those sins could be remitted. How do you remit a record? Am I reading that wrong? You, that, that doesn't, uh, just a change in us. Yeah, that's a good criticism, and we're going to take that. But I'm just thinking, thinking through if this were, we were to accept this, how does a record of sin remit? Well, doesn't it eventually say that it's going to be wiped clean? Thank you for bringing this up suggestion. The suggestion is made through history, and it's been taught in many places, that for the saved, there is an actual erasing out of books of heaven. A wiping of the record. Mm -hmm. What do you all think about that? I like to think of it as God forgiving. He's got it in his mind that we've been sinful, but he doesn't see them anymore. He sees us as in Christ. Yeah, but that has nothing to do with the records, does it? Yes, it does. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Absolutely. Does the scripture tell us there's records? The courts receded, the books were open. They were judged out of the things in the in the in the records. Does it say that in scripture? Yes. Pardon? Who says that all of our wrongs that are open? Well, they are judged by the deeds recorded in the books. That's what it says. At some point in time, either our name is going to be taken out of the book of life, or our sins are going to be wiped out. Well, she's this. She's saying, isn't it true that at some point the name is taken out of the book of life, or the sins are taken out? Yes. It has to be the wiping of the sins out of the heart and mind to change the person, not out of some. Oh, so well, let's uh, let's ask this question: Where does sin occur? In in books or in in hearts and minds? In hearts and minds, but it is also in a book. You know, she says it's also in a book, but what's actually in books? Sin or a historical account of the sin? So, is God in the business of destroying history? No, but He says He will wipe our sins. Away. He's going to wipe our sins away. Absolutely. Uh, so where does sin get wiped out of, though? Where does God want to remove sin? From record and recorded history or from the hearts and minds of his intelligent beings? She says both. He wants to wipe it out of history. Well, let's take that, let's take that minute. Let's take that and examine that. See if there, that, that there is any way God can actually do that. And I'm going to suggest it can't happen. God can never wipe away history and still be the God that we love and serve. Why? Why can he not do that? Well, let's look at some examples first. 
Do we believe that when we get to heaven, we will know our loved ones? Yes. And the scriptures tell us that for every reason we should expect that King David will be in heaven. He repented from his sin. Yes. Uriah will be in heaven. Bathsheba will be in heaven. And as they have a talk and they're conversing, here comes their son Solomon. And Solomon says, hey mom, will, will Solomon know his mother? And, 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 and Uriah will know his former wife, Bathsheba. And he'll look over and say, I didn't realize that I left you a child. Oh no, this is David's son. Oh wait, how did that happen? Well, we have no idea. Our memories have been wiped out. <laughs> Will we know? How about when the woman was caught in adultery? That uh, she was, you know, Christ went through the whole thing, forgave her, so forth and so on. And then a, few, a little while later, at the feast of Simon, she comes in and anoints his feet. Remember, with a very expensive perfume. And as they're criticizing her, Christ intervenes and says, "Don't criticize her. What she has done will be told through all history for all time, because those who are forgiven much." Love much. If we don't remember what God has forgiven us for, will that undermine our ability to love him? Oh, so will we remember? I'll give you a quick example. Let's say you have a child who is dying of a terminal disease, and they're on their last leg. And they, all the doctors in this community have told you there is no hope. They're, they're all, prepare funeral arrangements. all you can do. But a new doctor comes into town, and he says, if you trust him, He'll heal your child. And he goes in and gives the child one pill. And the child within 15 minutes is completely healthy. The disease is gone. Would you appreciate that, doctor? And how about you went to sleep the next day you woke up and you and your child have no recollection of ever being sick or the healing that transpired. Would you still appreciate that, doctor, the next day? No, you don't remember what he did. You see, this idea of wiping out memory undermines our appreciation for what Christ has done for us. The reason that it's taught is it goes, it's a direct attack on the character of God himself. We have to have our records wiped out because we don't trust that in the hereafter, if somebody knows the ugly stuff that we've done, that we could actually be loved and accepted. We don't trust we'd be safe there, that people would make fun of us. That's what, that's what the whole fear is, isn't it? And it's because we have this distorted idea of what sin is. We think it's legal rather than a condition. Let me give you an example. This is how I conceptualize this. Imagine your name comes up in church board to head the children's division at your church. And as the board is discussing your name, somebody says, wait, before you vote on this person, you need to realize that when they were five, they had a bad case of food poisoning, and they had nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and made a terrible mess all over their mother's new couch and new carpet. Now, if you were on that board and somebody said this, what would you think? So what? So what? Yeah, but they go, but it was gross. It was ugly. And you would say, are they sick today? Isn't that what you'd say? Well, no, they're quite healthy today. Then it doesn't matter, does it? You see, in the judgment, in the hereafter, that Satan is going to be there and say, hey, King David, oh man, he murdered, he committed adultery, he, he, uh, he, did, he did all kinds of nasty stuff. And the, Christ is going to say, well, let me look at the record here. Okay, judgment time, record books of heaven. <clears throat> David, son of Jesse, David, son of Jesse. Okay, here we are, David, son of Jesse. Oh, no, I can see that the magic eraser ink of my blood has been applied to his record. We don't know what you're talking about up here. 
No, that's not what he says. He says those facts of history happen, but they're irrelevant because David has a new heart and a right spirit. He's no longer sick. He's not that kind of person anymore. He's well. Yes, those things happened, but David is no longer sick. And so we don't get new records. We get new hearts. We get new minds. We're recreated in the inner man. And through all history, David is going to have... Can you imagine the appreciation David is going to have for Christ? Can you imagine that scene in heaven when David and Uriah meet? And David says, Uriah, I, you were such a good friend. You were so loyal and faithful. You went out to battle to protect me, and look what I did to you. you I, 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 I love you, man. Yes, Ben. You mean the account of David in the Bible is not going to be wiped away? The Bible's not going well, to be wiped away? That, thank you very much. And so in this whole account, we, you know, we as our, in our church teach that judgment started in 1844 with the, the Adam and then working its way through history, right? And that the, those of the righteous are getting wiped out of the books. Well, certainly we've passed King David by now, haven't we? David's name has come up and gone by. So that means when we're pulling our Bibles out and reading them here, our guardian angels are going, David did what? I never heard that. Really? Do the angels know? Or has it been wiped out of heaven? They know. They know. What wipes out is the effects of what would have happened had he continued that sin. So does anyone see a... A, a problem with a theological system that requires records to be remitted. Records don't remit. Sinfulness in hearts and minds remit. Remission. When you have a child with cancer and you get that cancer treated, you want the cancer to go into remission. You want the cancerous cells to remit back to their previously healthy, non-cancerous state. So we want sinners sinful hearts and minds, to remit back to God's original design as he created mankind and Adam to be. And so sin goes into, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Sin itself is put into remission. Our hearts are changed from selfish back to loving. The law of love is written on the heart and mind, as it says in Hebrews chapter 8 and 10, the new covenant experience. So this is one of the problems I have with the whole penal model. The whole penal model misdirects the focus as a problem with God who is illegal and has to have something done. It's his pardon is in the way of our salvation. And then the record books have to be adjusted and erased. It really, it really takes the focus off of the achievement that Christ has done to actually transform, fix, and heal all the damage sin has caused God's creation. Last paragraph, it says, Paul contrasts Adam and Jesus, showing how Christ came to undo what Adam did. Very nicely stated. Christ came to undo what Adam did. And that by faith, the victims of Adam's sin could be rescued by Jesus, the Savior. The foundation of it all is the cross of Christ and his substitutionary death there, which opens the way for every human being, Jew and Gentile, to be saved by Jesus, who with his blood brought justification to all who accept him. Any thoughts about that? I like, I like this idea that he came to um, undo what Adam did. I think that's very well stated. That's what he came to do. Undo what Adam did. What did Adam do? He didn't trust God. He didn't trust God. Think, think through what Adam did. You see, there's, there's one idea. Is if he came to undo what Adam did, and what they're, saying, what they're saying Christ did is he paid a legal penalty. So then what did Adam do? He got in legal trouble. He broke a rule. Well, then Christ had to come and pay the penalty. How does that undo anything? But if he broke trust with God and changed his nature, so mankind's heart and mind now function on a different protocol, a different premise, 
that we are alien. We, we value self. We live in fear. We are self-centered. We are taking a path that leads to self-destruction. Christ came to reverse this, to destroy selfishness, to reveal truth, to win us to trust, to rewrite love back into the human species. Well, that's a whole different deal, isn't it? Yeah. Sunday's lesson asks us to read Romans 5, 1 through 5. This is Romans 5, 1 through 5 out of the NIV. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Think that through. Justified through faith, we now have peace with God. There are two ways to explain that, at least two ways to explain that. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit by whom he has given us. And then the first two paragraphs go on to talk about this. And this is what it says. I want you to be analyzing, thinking here. Being justified is literally having been justified. The Greek verb represents the action as completed. We have been declared righteous or regarded as righteous, not through any deeds of law, but through our having accepted Jesus Christ. The perfect life that Jesus lived out in this earth, his perfect law-keeping has been credited to us. At the same time, all of our sins have been laid on Jesus. God has reckoned that Jesus committed those sins, not us. And that way, we can be spared the punishment that we deserve. That punishment fell on Christ for us, in behalf of us, so that we never have to face it ourselves. What more glorious news could there be for sinners? Oh, I can think of a lot more, and I've got them listed right here. <laughs> like, and I, the first thing I'm going to answer is that last question. What more glorious news? How about that the character of God is revealed in Jesus? That God is not a liar or a fraud or a twister of evidence and truth. He doesn't declare one to be righteous who is not righteous. He doesn't play games. He doesn't play smoke and mirrors. How about that God is love and love sacrifice itself to heal and restore? How about Christ actually achieved a real victory over a real problem? Not a not a, a legal fiction. How about that God never required a payment or that sins must be punished? And in fact, this idea, you hear it in the lesson. Did you hear that sin has to be punished here? Yeah, listen, this is Desire of Ages 761. See if this sounds vaguely familiar to something we just read. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed. This is the wedge that drives division. The law of God cannot be obeyed. That justice was inconsistent with mercy. And that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. And we have taken this, and we have built an entire theology on it. Sin has to be punished. Jesus came to take our punishment. Our sins were put on Christ so they could be punished in Christ because sin has to be punished. Do you, do you see it? The Bible says sin brings its own punishment. The, she says the Bible says sin, the wages of sin is death. Sin brings its own punishment. God doesn't have to punish sin because sin brings its own punishment. Two paragraphs later in this flow of thought where she just finishes saying that 
that Satan's allegation is that every sin must be punished. Here's what she says the law requires, because our, our quarterly is suggesting that the law in, uh, requires that sin be punished. Satan suggests that God's law, if it's broken, requires that sin be punished. Here's what she says. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. And this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. What are the claims? He claims what? Perfect righteousness. Why does it claim that? Can anybody explain to me why? Is it arbitrary? God says, hey, you have to obey perfectly because that's what I set up as my standard. If you don't, I'll have to punish. Is that why it claims perfect righteousness? Because of God's, God's perfection. Because of God's perfection, what else? Because of life. Say that louder. If I were to say to you, the laws of health require respiration, you have to breathe. If you decide to deviate from that law and try to survive with a plastic bag tied over your head or out in outer space without a spacesuit, because you're going to have your own way. Why should I have to breathe? I mean, that's arbitrary. Uh, listen, I'm a free being. If I want to go out in space and just go along without a space, I should have the right to do that. Why should I have to die for that? You see, this is the, this is the distortion, and it comes from distorting God's law. God's law seeing something he imposes and therefore has to impose penalties when it's seen as God's law is the, play, the template, the protocols, the construction uh, protocols that life is built upon. This is why it requires perfect harmony. Because only in harmony with the law of respiration can you live. Only in harmony with the law of God can you live. God can't deviate it. And so if you've got a plastic bag tied over your head, and you've probably heard this statement, the law cannot be changed to meet sinners in their sin. If you have a plastic bag over your head, the law of respiration cannot be changed to meet that person in their situation. We can't change the law of respiration to somehow accommodate that. God can't accommodate us in sin. He has to actually fix it, put us back in harmony. So the law requires righteousness. Um, we can't do it. Uh, we can't meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Now listen to this. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through. Well, the quarterly would suggest through the proper legal payment when Christ took our punishment upon him. That's what the quarterly would suggest. Here's what this word say from the book's Desire of Ages. It says, Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. As we said in the beginning of class today, we never said God's forgiveness wasn't necessary. We said it was never an obstacle. It was never in the way. God was extending forgiveness all the time. Christ didn't have to die to achieve God's forgiveness. He did have to die to achieve righteous, righteousness for mankind. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled, as was said earlier, in the believer... In Christ, he can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Any thoughts? Do you see a difference? Does it make a difference? Or are we just, are we just making stuff up here? Well, any other concerns about this? The other concern that popped into my mind as I read this, besides this idea of, of sin needing to be punished, as you saw that, I mean, this whole, this whole premise here, can sins be transferred? 
I mean, the whole, this whole thing is predicated that your sins, David murdered Uriah and stole Bathsheba and had an adulterous relationship with her. That historical fact and act now is transferred to Christ. Can historical acts be transferred? If it's transferred, then there's no change of heart in David. If it's transferred, there's no tra- change of heart in David. Christ came to deal with the problem of sin, not individual sins. Think, think through the implications here. Because this penal model has as its, one of its hardcore tenets. They, they, they build a sense of real security around that all the sins you've ever committed, past, present, and future, were lumped onto Christ. And this caused much of his suffering because of all the trillions and quadrillions of sins placed. If that were true, then we should, then Christ needs to give thanks to Hitler and Stalin because together they killed about 90 million people, shortening their lives. And, and when their lives are short, how many quadrillions of sins were not committed by those people? And therefore, all the sins that would have been committed had they lived were never put on Christ. So Christ's suffering was reduced. Or people who commit abortion, never born. All those lives, never born, never commit sins. All those sins weren't placed on Christ. You see, we're reducing suffering here. You see how twisted this can get? Yes. And actually, if you believe that all of the sins, past, future, were placed on Christ, then we're all safe, 100%. That's all just a legal model. We get, we get it, and that's it. So no, no, we have to accept it. No, no, but, but no, I'm taking that. If this is the way it says it. Yeah, yeah. She, he's saying if all the sins, past, present, and future are placed on Christ, then they've all been punished already. The debt's all paid. Yeah, but all we have to do then is accept the payment. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. <clears throat> yes. But to me, um, I, I'm, I'm just a real simple-minded and a But to me, I'm thankful that God died for my sin, and I think He paid. I think when He died on that cross, that He died and that He suffered the sin that happened to my death. I, I, I really believe that. And what am I accepting if I'm not accepting that? Yeah, let's keep going. See, let's look at the evidence. You're accepting what we just read: a new heart and a right spirit, a life achieved by Christ. Yes. But he achieved it. Yes. Suffered that for me. What did he take upon himself? Historical acts or a condition? It's, a condition. it's different than acts. Yeah. Yes. And my next very thing in my notes, Ezekiel 18. Look at that. Good job, Brent. Perfect. Right on. Thank you. Okay, Ezekiel 18. It says right in here the guilt of one is not transferable to the guilt of another. You look it up. You can read the whole long list. He makes a whole long case. Shall the guilt of the father be passed to the son, and the son then the righteousness of the can the righteousness be passed from the righteous father to a guilty son? Can a guilt from the son be passed to a righteous father back and forth? No. And then he says, "You read the whole thing. It's too long to read." Then God says, "And you say my ways are unjust. It is your ways, Israel, that are unjust, not my ways." And then what? If that's not good enough, how about this one, guys? Parable of the ten virgins. And the ten virgins, remember, five wise, five foolish. The bridegroom appears. Five don't have oil. They ask for oil from the five who do. And the five who do can't give oil. Anybody know why they can't give oil? Listen to this out of uh, Bible Echo, May 4, 1896. But some will have delayed to obtain the oil for replenishing their lamps. And too late they will find that character, which is represented by the oil is not transferable. That oil is the righteousness of Christ. The oil is the righteousness of Christ. It represents character, and character is not transferable. 
Well, is this just true for a righteous character, that righteous character is not transferable, or a sinful character not transferable as well? Can we transfer our sinfulness and our sinful history onto Christ? The whole legal model hangs on this idea. It has to be put on him because sin has to be punished. It goes back to that lie Satan told. God has to punish sin. Does God have to punish it? Or does he have to heal it, cure it, eradicate it, purge it, overcome it? What do you think? He's going to just punish it. Why couldn't he have done that 6,000 years ago and gotten it over with? There's, there's some, something here he wants us to learn, not just be punished. See, the problem we actually have is real, folks. We have a real problem of heart, mind, and character. It's not a problem that simply happens on some celestial record book. It happens right here. It's real. And we all know it. There's something defective in us from our birth. And we can't fix it. Christ came to fix what was defective. And the reason we were born defective is not any fault of our own. We didn't do it to ourselves. Adam and Eve did it to us. Christ came to fix what Adam did. That's why I like what the, uh, the lesson said earlier. He came to undo what Adam did. Brent, you had a comment. If you look at the FDA Bible commentary on Romans 5.11, quoting Ellen White, she says, the atonement is not a mere skillful way to have our sins pardoned. It is a divine remedy for the cure of transgression and the restoration of spiritual health. It is a heaven-ordained means by which the righteousness of Christ may not only be upon us, but also in our hearts and care. I love that. I think as well. It's a remedy. It's a heaven-ordained means where the righteousness of Christ is, is put where? Upon us and in our hearts and minds. In our hearts and minds. I think that's well stated. Well stated. It's not mere legal remedy. Thank you. If character is not transferable, then how do we receive the character of Christ? See, we already read one of the things today. In Romans 5, it says, He pours His love into our hearts. God is love. See, He pours Himself into our hearts. The Spirit dwells again in the Spirit temple. We become, as it says in Peter, partakers of the divine nature. We get a new heart and right spirit. The law is written on the heart and minds. We get the mind of Christ. It is a process of actually rewriting in our brains, if you will, a methodology, a principle of loving others more than we love ourselves. Of, of, of love casting out fear. Yes? So is another way of saying rewriting the, is that another way of saying the records were erased? Uh, well, let's think about this. Medical records. Your child has a terminal condition, goes to the doctor. Does the doctor then look at the records and begin removing all the record of disease in the child, putting in blank sheets of paper and saying, I have now erased the record of disease, your child's fine. Is that what happens? Or does the doctor look at the record of disease, go to the child, intervene in the child, and the records will show the disease, the records will show the intervention made, and now that the child is cured, the records will show the cure. But the records don't erase the history of disease before the cure was applied, does it? 
No. So that's what the records do. How he erases, if you want to say erases sins out of the record book, is not by erasing anything in recorded instruments. It's by transforming hearts and minds and, and erasing rebelliousness and sinfulness from our hearts and minds so that we are renewed. And then the records of heaven will document all that. And that's why love keeps no record of wrongs. Those records are, by the way, a whole other purpose of records. Does anybody remember a company named Enron? <laughs> you all have heard of that, right? Uh, did Enron have its record books opened and examined very carefully? Now, in those record books, were there millions of customers' accounts? Yes. When those record books were open, were those books opened to examine the customers? Or to examine the people who kept the records? Who's been accused as being unfair? Who's been accused of being untrustworthy? Paul in Romans chapter 3 says, God, may you win your case when you take it into court. So when Satan, and I'll give you this quick example. Some of you have heard it. I hate to repeat stories. But when I was in my fourth year of residency, I was uh, fourth year of medical school, I did my uh, an ER rotation here at Erlanger. And there was a helicopter crash out at Level Field, and they brought the victims of the crash to our ER. Uh, there was um, one lady who had uh, fractured femurs and fractured pelvis. She was alert, conscious when she came in. Quite, uh, by the time she got there, for every expectation for medical science, we could save this woman. She needed some blood transfusions and some surgery. But she was Jehovah's Witness. And she refused blood transfusions. She wouldn't let us transfuse her. Now, you know she was bleeding out into the, into the tissues of her body. We began to plead with her, heavenly pleading, pleading. Medical students, doctors, nurses, hospital administrator came down, hospital chaplain came down, hospital lawyer came down. We had multiple people intervening, pleading with this woman the entire time until she lost consciousness. Once she lost consciousness, we didn't plead with her anymore. When does heavenly pleading stop? When we can no longer respond. That's when the Holy Spirit stops pleading with us and we're beyond responding. Now, this particular, let me tell you, while this was going on, there was one nurse assigned to do one thing and that was document, 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 document. Everything that everybody was saying in that room was being documented. And I mean copious documentation. You all who are in medical industry know this, right? Okay? And now this woman died. She was African-American. The only African-American on the flight and the only one to die. Everybody else was saved. Now, if the family comes along and makes allegations that we're not fair, we're biased, we're bigoted, we're prejudiced, We'll save white folk. We won't save the African-American folk. What will come into evidence? The medical records. For the purpose of, of, of judging and criticizing this woman? Or for the purpose of defending the health care team who did all they could to save this woman? You see, God has been alleged to being unfair. Oh, he saved these. He didn't save those. He's, he is arbitrary. He picks some he likes. He likes Jews. He'll, he'll save the Jews. Oh, Gentiles, he didn't like them so much. He won't save them. You see, this, this arbitrariness, picking and choosing. God, you know, he hardens some and he saves some. Some take this out of scripture. We're predestined. Some he picks, some he doesn't. What will come into evidence? Record books will come into evidence. For what purpose? To judge those of us or to show that God did all he could for every one of us and those who are lost are lost only by their persistent refusal to accept all God has done for them. This was another reason for the record books. Boy, there are several things I want to get to. Um, Tuesday's lesson, third paragraph says, commentators have argued, moreover, this passage of Scripture, and this is uh, Romans chapter 5, 12, 5 verse 12, uh, 
than most others. Perhaps the reason is, as noted in the SDA Bible Commentary, that these commentators attempt to use the passage for purposes other than Paul intended. In the next paragraph, one point they argue over is, in what way was Adam's sin passed on to his posterity? Did Adam's descendants share the guilt of Adam's sin, or are they guilty before God because of their own sin? Though folks have tried to get the answer to this question from this text, that's not the uh, the issue Paul was dealing with. He had a whole other object in mind. He was re-emphasizing what he had already stated, for all have sinned. We need to recognize that we are sinners because only that way will we realize our need of a Savior. Paul here was trying to get readers to realize just how bad sin is and what is brought into this world through Adam. Then he shows what God offers us in Jesus as the only remedy to the tragedy brought upon the world through sin. I really, through Adam's sin. I really like that part. The only remedy. Christ is the only remedy to sin. But back up to this question here. This, these verses, uh, Romans 5. I put my uh, paraphrase in the notes for those who want to read it. What do we understand this to be? How, what did Adam's sin do to mankind? Death was passed along. We talked about the, the text in, in, in Ezekiel where guilt is not passed along from father to son and so forth. Behavioral acts are not passed along to father to son. What about consequences? Are consequences passed along? Can we pass along to our children and our posterity both healthy and righteous consequences as well as unhealthy and sinful consequences to our lifestyle and choices? Under the third and fourth generation of them, it says in the commandment, we pass down things. I thought you might be interested in little science. Um, What we're discovering now in the last 50 years in science and really in the last uh, 15, 20 years is... uh, it's not just the genes you have that make up who you are. It's how those genes are being expressed. If you consider your DNA, your DNA is basically a big library of information. That's what it is. It's a big library of information. But uh, what de- determines particularly who we are and what cells and what tissues of our body are is which books of that library are being opened and data is taken from it and things are being built out of it. For instance, every cell of the body, except for the, hemoglo- uh, except for the um, red blood cells, have a complete library, a complete chromosomal DNA package in the nucleus of every cell. Why is it your brain cells don't produce hemoglobin? They've got the genes for hemoglobin. Why don't they produce it? Because the brain cells choose different sets of genes to express than the blood cells do. And they, have, they all have the same sets of genes, but certain genes are chosen to express, certain genes are chosen not to express. Well... What we've discovered is that, uh, that these types of, of choices, the things, you, life experiences, what you go through and the choices you make in life actually alter which genes are turned on, which genes are turned off, and you can pass this down multiple generations. Give me some, some recent studies in, in animals and then some in humans. Fruit flies, which were exposed to a drug called geldamycin, uh, show an unusual growth in their eyes that lasts through at least 13 generations of their offspring, even though no DNA change, no sequence change in the DNA has occurred. And generations 2 through 13 were not exposed directly to the drug. So generation 1 exposed to the drug, DNA sequence has not changed, but they have an expression change where they have this alteration in the way the eyes look, and that expression change is passed down 13 generations, even though the rest of the generation is never exposed to the drug. How about roundworms fed a particular type of bacteria exhibit loss of green fluorescent protein and a small dumpy-looking appearance that lasts 40 generations, even though no change in DNA sequence. 
40 generations. That, in human terms, is equivalent to about 1,600 years of human generational history. These are exposures. What about emotional, stressful events? Certainly, just a, a, a relational interaction wouldn't change how our genes are expressed, would they? Well, Michael Meany at McGill University, Montreal, discovered that newborn mice that were neglected by their mothers are more fearful and agitated as adults, and they noticed that this correlated with expression changes of the genes that code for stress. They altered the way those genes were being expressed because of the neglectfulness of childhood. What about behaviors? Men who smoke before the age of 11. If you smoke before the age of 11, you increase the rate of obesity and metabolic problems in their sons, but not their daughters. This was passed along through the Y chromosome. It actually altered how the Y chromosome is expressed so that the sons of men who started smoking before the age of 11 would have more obesity and, and metabolic problems. Um, and then men who experienced a famine or food shortage sometime before they had children conferred higher risk of an early death on their grandsons, but not their granddaughters. And, and women who experienced famine conditions sometime before they had children experienced higher mortality risks on their granddaughters, but not their grandsons. Again, altering how genes are being expressed on the sex chromosomes, X and Y. These are examples of negative effects that we can pass along. Are there positive effects that we can pass along? Well, this is fascinating. You'll like this. They genetically engineered mice to have significant memory problems, basically to be stupid mice. <laughs> and then they took these genetically engineered mice that were stupid mice and they raised them in an enriched environment meaning lots of toys lots of exercise lots of social interaction uh, actually just for two weeks during their adolescent period so just and for mice you know two weeks is longer than it would be for us and this is not surprising the animals memories improved because they were getting lots of stimulation and even though they're they're genetically bred to be kind of dull-witted um they uh, they were able to improve from that baseline what was surprising, however, was that um, the mice were then returned to the normal conditions where they grew up and had offspring. The offspring were genetically uh, stupid mice as well, but the offspring of these mice had better memories despite having a genetic defect for bad memory and having never been exposed to the enriched environment. If you follow what just happened, genetically inferior mice get enriched environments. This environmental experience caused them to improve their memory. And then when they had their kids, even their kids have genes to be stupid. Because of the parents striving to overcome that, they passed along a better capacity. So these kids had better memory, even though they didn't get the enriched environment. And the researchers then looked at a molecular correlate, a molecule that correlates with memory that helps something in our memory called long-term potentiation, which may, basically means when we form a new memory, new connections, it helps those connections maintain and stay there a long time, a molecule that helps do that. And the environmental enrichment uh, fixed the faulty molecule that prevented this long-term potentiation. So that experience caused it expression change to help these connections stay longer, and that fix of the expressed DNA was passed down to the kids with the bad genes. So we can actually pass good stuff along. Wow. Isn't that cool? And then I'm going to read this to you out of a book called Maranatha, page 237. A genuine conversion changes hereditary and cultivated tendencies to wrong. We've had parents who lived wild lives. They've, they were into drugs. They were into crime. They, they've rebelled. We have parents that have done that. 
So we've got maybe got a genetic predisposition that, that sets us up to have problems. A genuine conversion changes hereditary and cultivated tendencies wrong. The religion of God is a firm fabric composed of innumerable threads and woven together with tact and skill. Only the wisdom which comes from God can make the fabric complete. There are great many kinds of cloth which at first have a fine appearance, but they cannot endure the test. They wash out and so forth. So the point, a genuine conversion would be like this enriched environment. We actually come to experience new perspectives, new ideas, new love, new truths. And this change of experience will alter gene expression and overcome hereditary tendencies. Christ came to fix everything Adam did to humanity. In order to do this, he took upon himself a humanity just like ours. And only through unity with Christ can we experience a real transformation of our minds, brains, characters, and even now how our DNA is expressed. Brent. Talking about, let me interrupt you for a second and, and, and say that so everybody can hear it. Okay? He's saying this is epigenetics, and that epigenetics, epi, epi means above, like epidermis. Okay, epi means above, genetics to genes. So this is happening above the actual DNA itself. This is the mechanisms that control DNA expression. And this is, he says, passed along. And he's saying that Darwin's finches, and remember the Galapagos Islands, he observed different finches with different beak sizes, and he concluded that this was adaptation happening through DNA mutation, and this is how things evolve over time. What we're now seeing, in fact, no, Darwin was wrong. There was no DNA changing going on in the finches. What was happening is what we're talking about now, the control mechanisms that decide how things are expressed we're changing how the, fit, the beaks were being expressed, not the evolution that Darwin talked about. Okay, go on. But, you know, Romans 5.12 does say that you know, death passed on from Adam. Yes. Is not the death of genetics. A record of our iniquity in our... Is there not another record there that needs to be expunged? Interesting. I think I, I have no problem with what Christ did uh, completely fixing all that. I think we're going to have a, he raised in a glorified body. We're going to get a completely glorified body when he comes again. This, this mortal will put on immortality. So we're going to get genetic perfection. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that at all. I, I, in fact, I'm glad for that. Aren't you glad for that? Before we put on the immortality, before we're changing, there's still changing that's going on that, that changes our, that our gene expression. Yes, I, that's happening right now. The choices we make. Some people ask me all the time, why is there so much more mental illness today than there maybe was 50 years ago? Uh, I will give you, I think, an explanation that correlates with this epigenetic change that has happened in our society and around the world that is contributing to a crescendo of, of consequence, and that is theatrical television watching. Theatrical television watching came into the U.S. in 1945. Theatrical television watching activates limbic system circuits, paralyzes prefrontal cortex circuits, causes a, uh, a increasing uh, amount of, uh, uh, of uh, stress hormones to be released, uh, alters the developing brains of kids so they have less uh, reasoning powers, less uh, capacity to, uh, to self-govern and all these things. This is altering gene expression. Genes are being altered in their expression. Then these kids have kids, will pass on this new expression. 
this new generation of kids not only get this bad expression, now they get a bigger dose of TV than the first generation had, and they further alter the expression, and then those kids have kids, and they pass on the gene expression and give them a bigger dose of TV than those parents had, because you know our media exposure is every generation getting higher and higher and higher. And what's happening is we're altering the brain and gene expression, increasing the, uh, the limbic system or the, uh, the emotional circuits uh, firing, causing inflammatory release in the, in the periphery, causing all types of consequences. And this is why obesity is going up in kids. This is why diabetes and metabolic problems are rising in this country. This is why we're having more mental illness, anxiety disorders, depression is going on in this country. We are actually altering um, our, our very uh, DNA expression. The actual code, the base code itself, is not mutating like, like um, Darwin would say. We're just altering how things are being expressed in an unhealthy direction, and, and generation after generation is getting worse. The good news is, regardless of our inheritance, if we start applying God's methods and principles, we start meditating on God's character of love, we start filling the mind with truth, we start taking out these toxins, gene expression will alter in a different direction, and we can pass on to our kids an advantage that we didn't have. So we have choices we can make. So just because we have inherited this doesn't mean we're subject to be controlled by it. Oh, yeah, and ADD and ADHD. This is another reason why there's so much rise of ADHD in the society. Yes, it's a real disorder, but it's happening partially because of this type of consequence going on. There's no question. And there's nutritional factors that do the same thing. I don't have time to go into all the nutritional factors that alter DNA expression and and and. What mom eats during pregnancy, before she gets pregnant, what she eats during pregnancy, pass down three, four, five generations to the kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, great-great-grandkids. I want to share with you now my, my paraphrase of Romans chapter 5, 12 through 14. And this is what it says. Therefore, the infection of distrust of God, which deformed man's heart and mind with selfishness and fear and results only in death, infected the human race when Adam accepted lie, Satan's lies about God and broke trust with him. This infection of distrust and selfishness is inherited by all mankind because all are born infected. This is revealed by the fact that before the written law was given, the infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness was already in the world. But this infection of distrust, fear, and selfishness is not diagnosable without the law. Nevertheless, even without being diagnosed as infected with this terminal condition, mankind still died from the time of Adam to Moses even those who did not break a specific command like Adam did, revealing that the problem is the infected state of our minds, not a legal issue with God. Adam, the first man, being the conduit through which the infection entered humanity, represents the one man who is the conduit of the antidote which cures the many who accept it. By beholding, we become changed. This is not simply by beholding, we become changed in the things we remember or value. We become changed. Neural circuits change. Gene expression changes. We actually become changed. This goes back to God's original design. He designed us in whose image? His own. So that when Adam and Eve came together in love and joined themselves together in love, they could create beings in their image. So we were actually designed that when what we go through, who we actually are becoming in life, that we will then be able to reproduce that being another being in our image. That's awesome. That's awesome, yes. Except if you're going down a destructive road, you see? But that's what's happened. That's why we were all born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51. No, that's a great point. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have done more than simply extend your personal pardon to us, that you have sent all of heaven in your Son, because you so love the world that you gave your Son, not to earn a pardon with you, but to actually reverse the damage that sin has done to your creation.
that through our trust and confidence in you, we can experience the victory that Christ achieved in our behalf. And we pray now that your spirit will pour out to take all that Christ has achieved and to reproduce it in us, that our fear can be removed, our doubt can be removed, our confidence in you can be increased, our, our heart can be renewed to love you and love others, that we can give of ourselves and have that greater love that no man can have except we give our life for you and for friends. We pray in your holy name.